0: What does it mean to bring our whole selves into the world, to give ourselves the gift of unconditional acceptance? Join me as we learn together. I'm Jorgen Salvis, and this is Unshaming. Hey Unshamers, this is Jordan. Happy New Year. Unshaming is a podcast that highlights the silenced and forgotten voices of society, brightly and vividly. In this episode, we take a step into the world of someone living with borderline personality disorder. If you're wondering what that is, don't worry because we actually talk about that in the episode. The Brain and Behavior Research Institute estimates that approximately 1 in 20 Americans actually have borderline personality disorder. So chances are, you probably know someone living with it right now. Megan Brogdon, my guest on this week's episode, is a writer and a small business owner. For several years, she struggled with severe anxiety, instability in her career, and romantic relationships. She was then diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. What she once thought was a life sentence for a dismal future ended up becoming a transformational experience of growth and acceptance. During our interview, I appreciated how she was able to speak about many of these experiences matter-of-factly, but it wasn't lost on me that these aren't just facts in her life. They're experiences she navigates every day. Before we start this episode, it's important to note that neither Megan nor I are experts in this field. Any claims, opinions, or experiences that Megan details are her own. If you'd like to learn more information about borderline personality disorder, you can visit the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation at bbrfoundation.org. This is the shame of borderline personality disorder. How do you refer to this as? Is it a mental illness? Is it a disorder? I think a lot of people who are listening would be curious to know the answer to this because it would be important to know, is it offensive to you when people ask if this is a mental illness or if people project on you that it's a mental illness? What is this to you? How do you describe it as?
1: Yeah, great question. Borderline is a spectrum and I am on the mild or considered high functioning side of the spectrum And so I just want to kind of disclaim that I'm not speaking for the entire spectrum of folks with Borderline. I'm simply discussing my personal experience and what that looks like for me day to day to answer your question, Jordan, I think that it's all up to the person. So I think it just comes down to personal preference. For me, it is a mental illness. I do consider it a mental illness. Um, I think clinically it is considered a disorder. It's essentially a disordered coping mechanism. And so, you know, it is called borderline personality disorder. So I think it really depends. I don't necessarily feel offended in either circumstance. I think it's all about personal preference. So feel free to mention either or or kind of talk about it how, how you'd like.
0: The takeaway there is to ask the person, essentially.
1: I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's with anything too, right? Like, in terms of identities, I mean, people these days are really in a transformational space. And I think it's really important to kind of, you know, use people's pronouns that work for them or ask them what they want to refer to um, their illness as or or things like that.
0: What is borderline personality disorder?
1: Yeah. Borderline personality disorder at its root is essentially a disordered coping mechanism. And so what that means is that at some point or another, you experience repeated traumas and you did not develop healthy coping mechanisms to deal with those traumas. There are nine tenants of borderline personality disorder. And in order to be diagnosed, you have to fall, you have to have five or more of those tenants applied to your daily life. Myself and my therapist went through it kind of line by line, tenant by tenant. And I would say I applied to about six and a half. Uh, clinically, there's no half, like you don't get a half point or anything like that. But by and large, borderline, like I said, is just a disorder in which you experience traumas and you didn't have a method for coping. And then at that point, essentially, your behaviors start to change and, and they become unhealthy and, and things like that.
0: What are those tenants, Megan? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So there are nine of them, as I mentioned. And um, the first one is a severe fear of abandonment. The second one is a characterization of instability in your relationships The third one is a distorted or unstable self image.
0: Megan says the tenets of borderline personality disorder essentially surround the inability to manage emotions effectively, from anger to sadness to even suicidal thoughts. Many people with borderline personality disorder report such intense feelings of emotional instability that it almost doesn't feel like they're in their own body. Several people with this illness also battle with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and substance abuse at the same time. What was that architecture of your illness? And you also mentioned borderline being essentially an illness that results from a lack of coping mechanisms. Can you dive into your story and sort of what that architecture was and what those coping mechanisms were?
1: I would say that there are two pretty large traumas in my life that are the additional tenants of architecture in this illness for me. And the first one is that my dad is and has been a super severe alcoholic for my whole life. And I didn't know until much later that it was constantly like in and out of rehab and in and out of AA and like getting sober and then relapsing, getting sober and relapsing, right? Like from my perspective, it was just always like, We're stopping to get medicine quite a lot at the liquor store. You know, he was a super high functioning alcoholic and actually didn't get a DUI until much, much later, like pretty recently. In fact, it was just little things, you know, like getting kicked out of a basketball game for being belligerently drunk or doing inappropriate things at daycare just really weird stuff right like objectively strange things and when you're little you don't know like oh that's because this person is addicted to alcohol but you know just finding shooters in the center console or under the seats or in his workshop or whatever you know but really essentially what that experience meant for me is just that there was always something kind of more important going on right like We're always focusing on what strange thing my dad did or like how embarrassed I am that he got kicked out at my basketball game or trying to mend whatever argument my parents got into or, you know, much later in life, kind of into my teens, like, all right, like dad, you know, got into an accident or dad fell down the stairs and broke several bones because he was heavily inebriated. And and so that really just teaches you, right? Like there's always something bigger and better and more important going on than you.
0: I can't say what I need because clearly there's someone who needs more than me. That's what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sort of clarifying that. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, I think too, it really put pressure on me to be like a really good kid. You know what I mean? Like there's already a lot of chaos going on behind closed doors. And so that means good grades. That means never getting in trouble. That means like never losing things. Right. Like when I was young, I always thought like, oh, if I don't lose things, like, Oh well, at least my parents don't have to spend extra money on the lost phone that I I, you know, misplaced or whatever and just constantly like trying to
0: like overcompensate yeah,
1: like. and like be an overachiever, right? And so like I do consider myself like a pretty well-rounded person, but I think that happened because I was just like, "All right, what's the next like good thing that I can do? What's the next overachieving thing that I can do?" right? Like I was in theater. I was in choir. I played varsity sports. I was in student council. I was on the honor rolls. I was in the national societies. Like There wasn't anything that I wasn't doing. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: To your point, as I've done more research on shame, that is a key component to shame is this overcompensation in order to create an image of yourself that is perfect. Because there's this other area of my life that i'm ashamed of i want everyone to think that i'm perfect so i'll go out of my way in order to maintain this image i'm wondering if that's sort of what what you felt was that your experience
1: I, I do think that to a certain extent, right? Like, I think it was a combination of trying to be like a really good kid and not, you know, contribute to the chaos. It was also probably trying to get some attention. Yeah, I think maybe it was just a combination of being like, cool, well, what more can I do for you to be like, hey, super proud of you or like, hey, like that was really great what you did, you know? And I think the second kind of tenant of architecture was kind of while all this is going on, right? Like while I'm kind of coping with <laughs> trying to be like, you know, a golden child and and dealing with my dad's alcoholism and kind of what that looks like for the family dynamics. I'm also dealing with a really super like abusive relationship. It's my first one ever, actually. So I started dating my high school boyfriend when I was like 14 or 15 and I lost my virginity. I had just turned like 16, so or 15. I was heavily manipulated in a lot of instances. Like, you know, he's like, well, we're gonna get married anyways, like might as well but then after being together for several years there were a lot of other sort of both verbally and sexually abusive instances and i think when you're that young it's really young to be having sex and at a certain point i had had sex but then i decided i didn't want to anymore and he was not keen on that he 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 framed it as like okay well we're in a serious like monogamous relationship and we're going to get married in a few years and so like we need to be having sex because that's what people in relationships are doing like Essentially it was like cool well if you can't meet my sexual needs like I'm going to find someone else who can but we're still going to be in a relationship together because I love you and like I want to marry you but like I also need sex and like I'm an adult type situation. <laughs> it's like cool we're 16 years old like this is not something that should be of a con- of concern for me, right? And I just I obviously knew something was wrong, but I didn't know like who do I talk to? Or or what does it look like? Or maybe this is super normal, right? Like he did have a point, like monogamous relationships are sexually active. Like, am I doing something wrong? Like, am I not allowed to not want this? And if I don't want it, like, do I still just have to do it? Because that's how it works. And that's how I felt, right? Like, I have to do this, even though I don't want to, because that's how it works.
0: What do you think were the connections between these these two experiences in your life and some of those tenants that you described earlier.
1: Those experiences really exemplify that like, I don't get to have needs, right? Or like I can have them, but no one's going to try to accommodate them. No one's going to try to say like, yeah, I should listen to you and like what you want and what you need is important too, right? And so I think that You know, it's that fear of abandonment thing type situation, right? Where it's like we're so focused on everybody else's needs that, like, I'm scared if I were to express mine. Like, what does that really look like realistically? Like, are they going to just bounce now? Like, because I express what I need. But I think also, especially as it pertains to the distorted self-image and things like that, right? Like, I think I just didn't have any real good, like really good examples of like people bolstering me in terms of my self-image and being proud of me and and knowing that I'm like worthy of like normal love, right? And that I don't have to have sex when I don't want to and I don't have to be in an abusive relationship if I don't want to.
0: Basically, these experiences built a narrative to use subconsciously that... You didn't feel as though you were worthy of vocalizing your needs. You weren't, you didn't feel as though you were ver- worthy of having those needs met. Is that what you're saying?
1: Again, I think when you're so young, like you're, there's no discussion on that. There's no discussion on, okay, like, Here's how you tell people what your needs are and here's how you get your needs met and here's how you set healthy boundaries, right? Like I didn't have any of that. So these were just things for lack of a better term that were happening to me. I didn't have any tools for for coping or or understanding. And so yeah, you're right. It just developed a super unhealthy narrative at a certain point where it's like relationships are super abusive and relationships are these things that, you know, where you have to make compromise and you have to do things that you don't want to do, or like you have to constantly be doing things that may not be right for you, but are right for the other person. Mm -hmm.
0: How did you come to understand that you had borderline personality disorder? What were the signs and symptoms that encouraged you to go visit a therapist to be diagnosed. And what was that diagnosis actually like?
1: The thing about borderline personality disorder is that it's not really inherited. It's developed over time. And so what's really interesting about that is that there's no real ability to pinpoint when it's fully developed, right? Or when you're experiencing symptoms. And so mine kind of came to a head about three and a half years ago. Like I was in a relationship with my living boyfriend and I came home one day out of nowhere and he was breaking up with me. But in that experience, we talked about uh, my quote unquote worry. And so at that point, that's what we were essentially calling my anxiety, but I didn't know it was anxiety. And he had mentioned that he felt that... He had to work so hard to prove that he loved me every single day as if I woke up kind of 50 first dates style. (laughs) But that really super shocking experience kind of brought me to an understanding that I have anxiety and I didn't know. And so that's kind of when I first started going to therapy and kind of exploring like, okay, what does it look like to be an anxious person?
0: And for all of the folks listening, these sentence are things that you can't actually control, correct?
1: Yes. And for lack of a better term, there's no cure for borderline. You can be medicated, right? Like Xanax and Zoloft and all those types of things to kind of help maintain your your behaviors and your mood and things like that. But by and large, like you can't get diagnosed with borderline and then suddenly not have it anymore. Borderline is something that you develop, like I said, over time, and you will always have it, they do say hypothetically that it does get older, or excuse me, does get better as you get older. So fingers crossed for that, right?
0: (laughs) So you get better at managing it.
1: Yeah, I think that's what they mean, right? Yeah, it's like, as you get older, like... Yeah, you have better coping mechanisms hopefully. And you know, that's just people who do get diagnosed. You know what I mean? Like I can't imagine that folks who are undiagnosed are magically getting better as they get older. But yeah, that's that's kind of the philosophy I think.
0: What were some of the tenants that you were experiencing?
1: They come and they go. I would say I experience at least one of these tenants every single day if not you know, more than one every single day. The first one is that severe fear of abandonment. Obviously, as I mentioned, that comes from a super traumatic breakup that came out of nowhere, but that shows up in really interesting ways in my current relationships in the sense that I'm just trying to make myself really fundamental to this person's life. Like I'm working so hard to go above and beyond to make, to do surprises, to be so kind and generous and over the top. And that is all in an effort to make sure that this person doesn't ever leave me. It's trying to just lay some permanence for myself into this person in their life. And obviously that's problematic, right? Because even if you're married, you can still get divorced, you know? And so there's a lot of uh, issues with trying to like be really permanent in someone's life and perhaps maybe they don't reciprocate or it just doesn't work out how how I feel. But Regardless, it creates a lot of anxiety feeling like, okay, this person will leave no matter what. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. And so that's tough. And that's true with friendships or or romantic relationships for me. I'm constantly worried like, okay, this person's going to stop finding me attractive or this person's going to stop loving me or this person is going to stop wanting to be my friend because I'm just too much. Right. The second one is the instability in relationships. For me, this one actually really shows up in a professional sphere. Like I have a really hard time staying in one place as it pertains to my profession. Um, I get really unhappy super, super easily, and I just... Obviously that's problematic, right? Like it's not, it doesn't offer a lot of stability for me in my life. And I have a hard time like just trying to be happy with what's in front of me. But on top of that, my relationships have continued to get shorter and shorter ever since that much larger one, right? And I always worry: is it because of borderline, right? Is it because I'm so scared of being left that I am just self-sabotaging 24-7 and that I'll never be able to have a long-term relationship? And Sometimes I think like, no, they're getting shorter because they're maintaining boundaries. And other times I'm like, nope, it's because you have an illness and a disorder. And like, even though you want to get married, it will never happen for you. Because statistically speaking, people with borderline actually do really have trouble maintaining long-term relationships, especially from a marital perspective. I have to constantly try to challenge that that is a Mm -hmm. self-fulfilling Those are the first two. The third one is distorted or unstable self-image. And for me, this one I experience very, very regularly. in super.
0: Megan and many other people who experience borderline personality disorder report that they don't so much experience low self-esteem as much as it is an inability to have any kind of internal understanding of who they are. In other words, many people with this illness say they rely on what other people tell them about themselves to be the truth. Megan says that although she holds a master's degree and is a published author, she questions her own intelligence when she feels it's being questioned by others. The overwhelming idea is that people with this disorder feel exhausted by the fact that they have to constantly rely on others to craft a self-image for them.
1: I use the analogy of being a boat on an ocean, (laughs) and I'm the boat, and my emotions are the ocean and there's no control, right? Like you just ride the waves and there's no way to put an oar down or to, to, you know, put a, an anchor down to stabilize yourself. You just have to ride the waves and hope that eventually you'll stop feeling this way. Or eventually, you know, as everything is on a spectrum, you'll start feeling a little bit better.
0: I wonder if getting diagnosed with borderline was in some way liberating for you to have a reason that all of these symptoms are existing and to have vocabulary to actually describe them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're you're 100% right. And to be really honest with you, I actually came to my therapist at a time when I had done a lot of self-work. I had done just a lot of <laughs> working on my anxiety and trying to figure out what things work and what things don't. And I got to a point where it was like, all right, well, we've worked on a lot of hard stuff and we're kind of in a lull here. So Borderline had actually been brought up to me two years prior from my therapist. You know, obviously, it's her job to point out patterns and to diagnose people. And two years prior, she had mentioned it. And at that time, I I did not handle it well. I was not equipped or prepared. And I think it really does have to do with shame, right? Like not understanding what it means to be a person with mental illness or a disorder and kind of spiraled out of control, like drinking a lot and self-harm and things like that. It really does give a name to a lot of experiences in my life. And it it has been super rewarding in that way to be like, okay, like here's how we are going to start understanding and managing patterns going forward instead of just feeling totally out of control 24 seven.
0: So when you think about how borderline manifests in your life today. And I know we talked about some of the tenants and 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 how you experience them. As you think of other people in your life, how does borderline maybe affect those people, your friends or future relationships, family members?
1: Honestly, I'm so worried about being a burden to everyone, right? That nobody ever fully knows the extent of what I'm experiencing, even now. Even with borderline, you know, like I'm constantly worried about being too much. So I am a very open person. I I really am an open book, but I think, yeah, like I said, I, I may only share like five of seven pages, right? Because I'm so worried about being too much. So like and it does just stem from being afraid. Okay, you're gonna stop loving me, you're gonna stop being my friend, you're gonna stop finding me attractive, you're gonna stop. It does really affect my relationships in that way, right? Where like I am super communicative, but it also means that sometimes I need a lot, you know? Whereas like before with, with not knowing that I had borderline, I feel like it makes a little bit more sense that I was a little bit more out of control. When you don't have a nomenclature and you don't have a verbiage to understand what's going on with you, like for lack of a better term, like you have an excuse, right? Like it makes sense. And now sometimes I worry that that's not the case anymore, right? And that I, Maybe am gonna to be too much, or that I maybe can't ask for as much support as I might, because I have this information. I have the knowledge and I have the coping skills, and I have CBD and things like that. And so it is it is a fine line right now between really trying to be super self-sufficient and also being okay with saying like, "Hi, like I love you so much, and I just need a little bit more.
0: Walk me through a scenario where you are experiencing one of these tenants, experiencing some of the side effects or symptoms of borderline and what you do to manage that.
1: That is a really good question. I think really the the most recent example that I have is just the extreme emotional swings. As I mentioned, that's the most visible and most prominent for me. They first start as like inklings, right? They first start as like a gut feeling and anxiety. And then after kind of letting it stew or continued efforts to maybe get my needs met and not getting them met in the way that I need, it starts to spiral. Right. And it just, it turns into a panic attack. Right. And so that's one thing that is really tough. Like I genuinely believe that there's nothing more tough for humans than like panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I think, They're pretty much second to grief for humans as it pertains to our ability to experience emotion. But I mean, it looks different all the time. There are things that I do habitually to try to maintain a certain sense of normalcy and that's yoga. And that's taking CBD when I feel like I'm out of control and I can't cope on my own with, with journaling or talking to friends. Like sometimes it doesn't matter, you know, how much I talk to someone. That's what it comes down to is the fact that like, I can use all these coping mechanisms all I want, right? But if it's an uncontrollable thing, which is what this is, nothing will help me. It really, it's kind of hit or miss, honestly. So like, there's there's no atypical experience with, with me and, and with borderline, right? Like like I said, sometimes the things that I'm working on all the time are enough to manage it. And sometimes they're not. And that's because that's the nature of the beast.
0: And I wonder, do you ever get mad at yourself? for having these uncontrollable feelings. Obviously it affects other people, but what about for you? You know, do you, knowing this information, do you get mad at yourself? Do you feel upset? Do you feel helpless that you can't actually control these symptoms?
1: 1,000%. 1,000%. And obviously that's not healthy either, right? Like you know there's nothing you can do in this situation, especially in the instances where I've tried everything, right? Like, and that was... Something that had happened kind of around my birthday this year, where I was just feeling like, cool, I'm not where I wanted to be when I was 28, right? Like, this is not what I thought my life would look like. And it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter that I took CBD. It didn't matter that I talked to my friends. It didn't matter that I did yoga. And it is very angering from my perspective because it's so tough to be someone who has mental illness and also be an incredibly logical person. I am a very logical person (laughs) outside of this disorder. And so it is frustrating. It's like, Come on, like you gotta, like, there's gotta be something that you can do that will stop this. And it's just a constant battle, right? Being like, hey, you know better, like, you should be doing better at controlling this. And then the other, like, borderline part of myself just being like, well, welcome to the reality that is borderline. There's nothing you can do and you just have to let it ride. And so it is frustrating and it is very, very anger inducing.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about. The 60%, so you had mentioned roughly about 60% of folks who have borderline personality disorder are hospitalized or institutionalized, or maybe institutionalized is an outdated word, hospitalized. Is that something that scares you? Do you fear that at some point that may be a reality for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I also just want to specify too that 60% is actually relative to hospitalization Sort of therapy tactics, medication, and I think one other modality as well. So it's not just necessarily like psychiatric care, but 60% of people who do have borderline will need one of those interfering modalities, right? Myself included, you know, I go to therapy twice a month, but yeah, it's absolutely fear inducing 100%. And that's, that's honestly just part of my narrative as it pertains to the entire illness. Like, I really oscillate between oh, I'm so excited to have a vernacular to describe this and to be able to try to cope with some of these um, symptoms on my own and and to learn new tactics and tools and, and practices And then on the other side of that coin, I'm like, holy shit, my life is ruined. This is a total map for my failure and lack of success, right like I'm never gonna get married. I'm never gonna you know, do any of the things that I thought I would do because I have borderline. And so it's something, like I said, that I oscillate between frequently, but you know, the whole hospitalization thing is a big part of that, right? Like trying to constantly combat it and be like, you know what? No, this is not my defining feature. Like I'm not going to be one of those 60%. Like things are going to be different for me. Right. But who am I to say, right? (laughs) Like my disorder is probably very similar to anybody else who has this disorder. And so it is frightening for sure, but I, I do try to, I do try to think about the fact that I have a wonderful therapist and I do have a really great support system, and I'm also really dedicated. Right, like I'm not someone who's just going to rest on my laurel and be like, "Cool, well, I'm diseased and I have an illness, so end of story." I'm going to constantly be working on self improvement because I want to be a better person, a better partner, a better friend.
0: Let's shift gears a little bit and and talk about what was your motivation for telling your story?
1: There are several. The first one is that so far... I am the only known person in my social circles with borderline personality disorder. I'm in a space where I sort of just want to normalize this conversation a little bit and to let people know like, hey, this is what it looks like if people in your in your circle have borderline personality disorder. Right. Like I have had girlfriends for 10 plus years. You know, I have a stable job. I um, have a pretty good social life. I'm working on starting a business. You know what I mean? So like I'm leading a fairly normal life. And so I think that's really important as it pertains to people who have mental illness. Like, hey, we're just like you. Like we want the same things. We want happiness and we want fulfilling relationships and we want to be successful and we want to do things that are important to us. And so uh, that's a big one. The second one is also empowerment. And so I think I'm just in that phase of being like, you know what? Like, again, knowledge is power. The more we talk about this, the better I'll feel. The more that I can build community and maybe help someone else show their story or like just let them know like, hey, this is what it looks like. (laughs) The better I think we'll all be. And then the last one is trauma wars. You know, I think it's really important that we are not spending time comparing one another's traumas. Obviously, having a super sexually abusive uh, first partner and having an alcoholic father, like those are traumatic, but it can always be worse, right? But that's not something I ever think about. And I don't want anybody else to think about and i don't think it's a healthy practice for people to be playing trauma wars right to be saying oh well it could have been worse or oh that's not that bad or hey well why don't you listen to the traumas that happened to me right and like let's let's compare and contrast you know i think that we need to spend more time validating the traumas that have occurred to people because everything is relative and everything is on a spectrum and i think We're not doing a good job of that right now. And I hope that this will help. Like, I hope that this conversation will um, be kind of a light to show like, okay, well, maybe my traumas weren't that severe, but they were severe enough to develop into a mental illness, right?
0: Now, what gives you hope about your life and your future? We, We obviously talked about some pretty heavy stuff and things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. What about your life is exciting and hopeful and gives you a sense of beauty. I think that's something that's important for everyone to think about and leave unshaming the podcast with, is that a lot of times we talk about heavy stuff on the show, right? We talk about many different topics and the different traumas that people have gone through. But ultimately, this show is meant to inspire folks and realize that we all as human beings suffer tragedy and grief, but we all are also capable of perseverance and overcoming and and being inspired by, by the gift of hope. So I'm curious to know, what does that mean for you?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing that creates hope for me is therapy not just for me, but for every person. I think every person really deserves and and really necessitates therapy, right? Like one thing I've really appreciate about this experience with you, Jordan, is that you've been invested in my story in a way that I feel like Pretty much only my therapist has, right? And there are people who've been with me for 10 years and they experience it in a, very different, in a very different way, right? Like they know who I am. They know my habits, my mannerisms, my patterns. But it's a very different experience to have someone sit down with you in this capacity and really delve deep and allow you to have this catharsis. So thank you for that. But that's to say, I, I really do I have hope for, for people who are in therapy, myself included. Also, I have hope from the changing sort of landscape, right? Like this podcast and you are a wonderful example. I think we're in a space of, of immense vulnerability just across the board, right? Like I think social media is moving to a more vulnerable space. I think workplaces are moving to a more vulnerable space. I think in our relationships and our, our, our day-to-day interactions, we're moving in that direction as well. And that gives me a lot of hope, right? Like I think that there is a lot of shame and there is a lot of stigma around these types of conversations. And I think what you're doing is really beautiful. And again, it kind of ties into the therapy thing, but regardless, I think that the movement towards acceptance and vulnerability and discussion is, is a really beautiful thing. And I'm super, I'm super stoked about it.
0: Me too. What is your, your message for folks who want to know a little bit more about people with borderline personality disorder. What do you want them to know? What's your takeaway for them?
1: So my big takeaway, people with borderline, we have the same desires as everybody, right? And I think that's so important to sort of like humanizing this experience is like we just are we're like everybody else. Like we want the same things. We want long-term relationships. We want success in our careers. We want, you know, that feeling (laughs) that everybody else is kind of out there seeking. And I think that it's just a little bit harder for us, right? Like we have these disordered coping mechanisms and we have these patterns of behavior that make those things a little bit more challenging for us day to day than for someone who doesn't have them. But I think that core desire and kind of like humanizing that is really super important. And I also just want to clarify too that, you know, People with borderline are acting or are motivated by two things, right? The sensation that they're out of control and they're trying to regain it. That one is happening for me all the time. And the second one is that we're working towards it. We're working towards creating stability. And so I just think it's really important that if you are in a relationship with someone with borderline, or maybe someone has expressed to you that they have borderline or things like that, that any sort of strange patterns or behaviors or or methodologies or manipulation or anything that you want to call it like, they're reflective of those two things, right? Like they're reflective of being out of control and trying to regain it. Like we want it, we really want it. And trying to get stability, right? Like trying to find trust and trying to find a certain homeostasis and things like that. Maybe take those two things into consideration.
0: Well, thank you, my dear.
1: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time.
0: I'm Jorgen Salvis, and you've been listening to Unshaming, For more information about anyone featured on the show, follow us on Instagram at unshaming or visit unshamingpodcast.com. If you liked this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Mirzi for generously providing us with her original music. You can find her wherever you stream. If you have questions or want to tell us what you're unshaming, DM us on Instagram or email us at unshamingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.